Welcome to this Gateway podcast. For more Gateway info, check out www.gateway-net.com. Enjoy. I want to pick up from where I left off last week. Last week I said I wanted to do a short series on divorce and remarriage. Uh, it seems like an unusual thing to do. I mean, maybe, maybe not for some of you, but you think, well, why would, you know, of all the things that you could preach on, why would you want to preach on divorce and remarriage? Well, a number of reasons. Number one, all our lives have been touched by it. I mean, if you haven't been divorced, one of your siblings has, or perhaps one of your parents has, or invariably one of your friends have. And, and often our response to divorce in terms of a biblical response is, well, it's, been, it's one, of two, one of two directions. It's either traditional hardline, no divorce, no remarriage. Your first marriage is the only marriage that counts in the eyes of God. If you marry somebody else, then it's adultery because in God's eyes, you're still married to that person. And while probably there are fewer and fewer people in that camp, those who move to the other camp of, well, I think under certain circumstances, God allows divorce and remarriage. When you push that issue, they are often incredibly unclear as to why they feel that, that would be biblical. You know, like, why do you believe that? Well, I just kind of think, I think God would be like that. I think he's kind and he's just, and, and, and I, I kind of think that he would allow that. But that kind of murky thinking also allows homosexuality, abortion, and a whole lot of other things that are without, uh, without doubt unbiblical. So how do we know that if we take that place, we aren't just b- being pushed around by feelings and circumstances, and, and we aren't rooted at all in biblical thinking? So that's why I just wanted to do a short series. I wanted to kind of get it on CD if I could. So we, we do have a resource for, for people in the future. Uh, last week, uh, we, we looked at the Old Testament, Old, Old Testament times, and we saw that the Mosaic law allowed divorce and remarriage. It wasn't that God thought it was a good idea. He obviously intended that marriage would be lifelong. But also being aware of human sinfulness and failure, he made provision to limit its damage. I think I mentioned last week, you know, people say, well, God never intended divorce. That's true. God never intended sin either. But he makes provision for our failure. He makes provision so that the damage of both can be limited and restoration is a possibility. I showed you that there were, th- there were four grounds for divorce in the Old Testament. The first one Sexual unfaithfulness is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, where it says, When a man has taken a wife and married her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorce and put it in her hand and send it out of her house. By the way, I I mentioned that in surrounding cultures, a man could leave his wife and at any time could simply come back and reclaim her. So the possibility of somebody else remarrying that woman was almost zilch because nobody was going to mortgage his future, invest in a relationship and and, and then have it taken off him simply at the whim of another person. So women who were divorced in the surrounding cultures were at the absolute bottom of the food chain, the most vulnerable, the most exploited. Mosaic law was incredibly merciful because what it required was if a man was going to put his wife away, he had to write out her a divorce certificate. And on that divorce certificate were the words, you are now free to remarry. 
without any possibility of me returning. So sometimes we look back on the Old Testament and think, oh man, she was a harsh world. In actual fact, given the surrounding cultures, the Mosaic law was a leap forward in terms of compassion and kindness and equity in, in terms of legalities across the board. So the first cause was sexual unfaithfulness. The, the other three are interesting. A failure to provide food, a failure to provide clothing, and a failure to meet the needs for conjugal love. And they're found in Exodus chapter 21, verse 10 and 11, where it says, if a man takes another wife, her food, he's talking about in a situation that allowed polygamy. And this guy's about to marry another woman, and now there is provision for the first wife. And he's saying, if you take a second wife, you cannot favor her to the exclusion of the first. And if you... Uh, you, you must continue with her food, her clothing, and her duty of marriage. They must not be lessened. And, and if you don't do that, if you don't do those three things, then she is free to get a divorce. Okay? Now, I, I, wanna, I, I talked a little bit about case law and statute law and, uh, last week, and this is case law. And so what you're talking about here is putting aside the specifics and looking at the principles. And, and uh, so... If you take those things that I've talked about from the Old Testament and summarize them, effectively, in the marriage vows, you are making a commitment to material support, physical affection, and sexual faithfulness. In fact, the Jewish marriage vows were based on those two passages, Exodus 24, uh, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy 24, Exodus 21. And, and each person promised that they, they would give material support, food and clothing, physical affection, conjugal love, and sexual faithfulness. And even the vows that we take today in our modern-day marriage ceremonies are a reflection of those Jewish vows where we promise to nourish, which is to feed, to cherish, which is to keep warm. We promise conjugal love and faithfulness. Now, we do it in varying degrees of changing the words, but effectively... That's what we promise. When, when these commitments were broken with a harsh-hearted stubbornness, the Old Testament had the valid possibility of divorce. Now, I finished last week by suggesting that it's ironic that those today who hold to an absolute no-divorce, no-remarriage kind of view are actually far stricter than the Mosaic law was. And, and I suggested that Jesus affirmed the Old Testament moral law. And I finished by asking the question, did Jesus repudiate what Moses said on divorce? Did he intend to change it and, and make it more stringent? Moses allowed these possibilities, but Jesus said, no way. And he made it more stringent. I'm, I'm of the opinion, and as I said to you last week, it's only an opinion. I mean, it's a studied opinion, but, but you, you've got to make up your own mind how you see this, but my opinion is that I don't think Jesus did intend to change the Mosaic law. I don't think he intended to make it more stringent. Now, someone said, well, Jesus did away with the law. Yeah, he did away with the ceremonial aspects of the law, but not the moral aspects of the law. And when it comes to divorce, my own opinion is that Jesus accepted as valid these Old Testament principles. What I want to do today is look more at Jesus, because if you've done any study on it, you might be thinking, well, look, mate, I can think of a couple of passages immediately that I could point to where it does seem to me that Jesus was being more stringent. And I want to look at those with you. The one particular one is Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 9, and I want to read it. It says, And the Pharisees came to him, tempting him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any cause? 
And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cling to his wife, and the two of them shall be one flesh. Therefore they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why did Moses then command to give a bill of divorce and put her away? He said to them, Because of your hard-heartedness, Moses allowed you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever shall put away his wife except for fornication and shall marry another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is put away commits adultery. Now at first reading, that certainly does seem more strict, more stringent than anything that you find in the Mosaic law. There is absolutely no mention of the grounds that Exodus chapter 21 talks about, you know, food, clothing, conjugal love. Jesus doesn't say anything about that. He simply says there's one case for divorce and that's sexual unfaithfulness. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like case closed. That's it. I mean, if Jesus said that, then there's no way around it. But without, without being aware of the background of this passage, you could easily come to that conclusion. Uh, and I think you would come to a conclusion that script, Scripture didn't intend you to. There's an old saying when it comes to trying to interp- interpret the Bible, and it says, a text without a context can easily become a pretext. And this is one of those classic cases. And what I want to do with you this morning is just take a little bit of time and look at the background work that, 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 is, that needs to be done as you look at that question that the Pharisees asked the Jews. Before this time, a few decades before Jesus, there were two key rabbis that rose to prominence. The, the two men had very, very different views on a number of things, including this passage of divorce and remarriage. The two men were Hillel and Shammai. When it came to the issue of divorce, Hillel was what we would call a liberal, Shammai was what we would call a conservative. Now, Hillel studied the passage in Deuteronomy 24, and, and he was fascinated by this phrase, if, if a man finds a cause for sexual immorality or sexual uncleanness in a woman, he can, he can divorce her. And what Hillel did, is he asked a question. He said, why did Moses use the phraseology, a cause for sexual immorality, when he could have said simply sexual immorality? As a result, he concluded that Moses was actually speaking about two issues, two reasons for divorce in this passage, and not just one. And he said the two were a cause any cause, and adultery. Now, this was a totally new development in Judaism. Actually, can, can I ask you if you wouldn't mind taking the baby out into a crash? I'm, I'm really sorry. I can understand why he wouldn't want to listen to me. If I was his age, I wouldn't want to either. Divorce and remarriage is a little beyond him right now, but I'd really appreciate your help. Thank you. Uh, he concluded that there were two grounds for divorce. Any cause and adultery. As I say, a completely new development, but you can understand it caught on very quickly. There were a number of people who decided, here's my out. And it became a very, very popular way of of divorcing your partner. It also became ridiculous very quickly. And people divorced their wives for literally any reason. Among them were things like, she burnt the dinner, she argued in a loud voice, she wore her hair down inappropriately. These became common as people bought into any cause divorce. It became popular because all you needed to divorce your wife 
uh, was to write out the divorce certificate. You didn't have to go to court. You didn't have to prove anything uh, in terms of uh, her uh, sexual unfaithfulness or whatever else. You just simply had to write out this divorce certificate. So it became very, very popular, and it was much in use uh, in Jesus' time. In fact, if you read the story of Joseph and Mary, you'll see that Joseph was considering an any-cause divorce to put Mary away. Now, now, I mean, Joseph was doing it for a completely different reason. He was seeking to protect Mary. He didn't want to expose Mary. So although he's doing it from uh, altruistic motivations, the reality is he was going to use any cause, divorce clause, to, to put Mary away. It had become very, very popular. But not everybody accepted this new type of divorce. Shammai, the other rabbi, rejected it. He claimed that Hillel had misinterpreted the scriptures wrongly and that the phrase any cause of sexual immorality simply had to do with a cause related to sexual immorality. It was, it was one reason to divorce, adultery, and that there wasn't any cause and sexual immorality. The disciples of Shammai wanted people to give up this any cause, easy divorce, and restrict themselves to the four valid reasons for divorce that were listed in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 24 and Exodus 21. And this was being heatedly debated at Jesus' time. Now this passage in Matthew chapter 19 that we looked at records an occasion when some Pharisees came to Jesus and they wanted to find out where he stood in that debate. Now there could have been some sinister reasons for doing that. The passage starts off by saying that Jesus had departed from Galilee and come into the borders of Judea beyond Jordan. This is Herod's country. There had been an issue previously where a key figure had stood against Herod and said, your, your marriage is not valid. It was John the Baptist. John the Baptist sided with the conservatives, with Shammai. And he said, this any cause relationship, Herod, that you've got yourself into with your brother's wife isn't valid uh, and you're living in adultery. Well, Herod's response was to take off John's head. Now they're in Herod's dominion within his jurisdiction and these guys come and ask Jesus to rule on the issue. You can almost feel like, hey, with a bit of luck, if he says the same as John the Baptist and we anticipate that he will, we may get the same result. And this will solve the threat that this man is increasingly opposing to, to, to our rule. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Now, that, that, once you understand the context, that changes the whole passage. They aren't, they aren't asking Jesus, can a man put away his wife? They are saying, we want you to rule on this Hillel Shammai debate. Are you any cause? Are you only adultery? The question first appears to be whether Jesus thought divorce was lawful or not. And, and you could look at the Mark parallel passage, and Mark shortens it. It says, they tempting him came to him and asked, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Is divorce lawful? That question seems to ask. But, this, but if that's what it's saying, this is clearly problematic because it's an illogical question. It's asking, is the law lawful? Because the law allowed divorce and all of the disciples, all of the Pharisees understood that and accepted it. If you just take that at face value, is it lawful? 
Well, these guys knew the law. They are experts in the law. Most of them probably knew by heart the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. They knew the law was lawful. So they weren't asking that. The question is not, is divorce lawful? For plainly it is under the Mosaic law. What, what they were asking is, what do you think of any cause divorce? Now you might be sitting there thinking, Don, it doesn't say that. Well, let me, let me ask you something. In our context, if I asked you the question, what do you think? Is it lawful for a 16-year-old to drink? And, and we started debating it. Uh, you know, well, you know, we, we talked to the police, we talked to, you know, social welfare. But at face value, that's a ridiculous question. Is it lawful for a 16-year-old to drink? Of course it's necessary and lawful for a 16-year-old to drink. If they don't drink, they dehydrate and die. You've got to drink when you're 16, you've got to drink when you're 26, 36, 56 or 86. If you don't drink, you're dead. What a stupid question. But you, none of you thought it was a stupid question when I asked it because you mentally added something. What did you mentally add? Alcohol. Is it lawful for a 16-year-old to drink alcohol? Every one of you understood the question, even though at face value, that's a ridiculous question. What about, should people smoke? You mentally add, what? Cigarettes. But, but, you know, removed from a distance, without that understanding, that becomes a smoke. They shouldn't smoke. They should put them out. You know, if they smoke, they'll burn. But that's exactly what we've done with this. We, the context is removed. And we're now debating kind of whether... Whether Jesus allows divorce of any kind, that's not what they were asking. They were asking any cause divorce. What do you think of any cause divorce, Jesus? You see, the debate was so common that it could be abbreviated and understood. And Mark simply abbreviates it, as he did for the rest of the book. The question is, Jesus, where do you stand on this issue? And, and Jesus stood with Shammai. He rejected any cause divorce. He was saying, when you divorce your wife for any cause, you, committed, you commit adultery, and, and she, being remarried, commits adultery. Jesus was not saying, I believe, as some suggest, that the only grounds for divorce is adultery. That interpretation, by the way, has led to some of the foolish and destructive things that I've heard over the years, and maybe you've heard too. You know, I've heard people say to a woman, you know, I know, I know your husband is physically abusing you and the kids, but you can't leave him unless he commits adultery. There's one grounds for divorce, and it's adultery. Have you heard that? I bet some of you have. I know your husband spends all the money gambling and drinking and he leaves absolutely nothing for you and the kids. Why don't you pray that he will be immoral as well and then at least you'll have cause for divorce. And you start thinking about this and think this is foolishness. Theologically, pastorally, just common sense, this is foolishness. But if you take what Jesus said, outside of the context of that discussion, that's what you end up with. The only cause for a divorce is adultery. If he's beating the snot out of you and he's drinking the money away and starving you silly, there's not enough. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, this, that does not make sense to me. I don't think it made sense to Jesus either. Plainly, it's practically, pastorally, theologically unwork unworkable. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. 
Let me very quickly, if I can, take a look at that passage in Matthew a little more closely because Jesus does take the opportunity here to straighten out some of these misperceptions, misunderstandings that they did have about marriage. And I, I, you, you need to go back over these. I'm just going to take you through them. But these are things that Jesus said in relation to their question. They said, is it lawful? What do you think of any cause divorce? And well, first of all, Jesus didn't answer their question. He went off and started to talk about marriage. And he said, listen, he said, firstly, marriage is always intended to be monogamous, not, po- not, not polygamy. It's early in the morning. Okay? Polygamy had been practiced through Old Testament times. Admittedly, by Jesus' times, it was not so common, but the rich people still did it. But he indicates really clearly that was never God's original intention. And, uh, and he quotes back Genesis 2.24. He said, it was, this is the way you do it, but it was not that way in the beginning. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh. He quotes Genesis 2.22, but he quotes it differently. And I've underlined the one word that he brings in that's different. And he said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, and the two of them shall be one flesh. And in a stroke, he said, you know what? Polygamy was never God's intention. It was always one man and one woman, lifelong. That's the intention. And in the stroke, he did away with their understanding of, of polygamy. The second thing he said was marriage is intended to be lifelong. No human being must separate what God has joined. Jesus took the lifelong nature of marriage really seriously. Friends, marriage breakup is an absolute tragedy, and those of you who have been through it will know the reality of that. By the way, when the Bible says in Malachi, I mentioned this last week, where God says, I hate divorce. You have to understand the spirit that undergirds that statement because I've heard that used against divorcees. You know, you can take this course of action, but I want to tell you, God just hates the course of action that you're taking. He hates divorce. And you get this sense that there's a real fine line between him hating divorce and hating divorcees. The reason that God said, I hate divorce, was because he had been through one. Do you know that God is a divorcee? He committed himself to the nation of Israel in a covenant relationship. Israel broke those vows again and again and again until finally God gave them up and wrote them a divorce certificate. You can read about it in Hosea chapter 2, Jeremiah chapter chapter 3. God knows the pain of divorce. And when the Bible says, I hate divorce, God is not saying it from some kind of puritanical point of view whereby he just says, that's such a dumb course of action and and I really hate it when you do that. He's saying... Man, I hate it when that happens. I know the damage that it does. It is tragic. It produces tragedy. It creates nothing but heartache. And I, and I hate it when that happens. There's a whole different spirit in those two things. Divorce is tragic. And, and there's an old Chinese saying that says there are no whole eggs in a broken nest. One of the things I want to talk about at some stage is the impact that the re- tearing and rending of husband and wife, the impact that it has on kids. There's been a study recently done, a 25-year unexpe- the unexpected legacy of divorce. It's a non-Christian book. It's a 25-year study of divorced children, and the results are staggering and in line with what you would expect when God says, I hate it when that happens. I hate it. Jesus took the lifelong nature of marriage seriously. Note what it doesn't say, though. It doesn't say... What, man has, what God has joined together cannot be separated. 
You know, some people teach that marriage is an indissoluble relationship. That means it's incapable of being annulled, undone, or broken. I don't believe that. I don't believe it's indissoluble. On the other hand, I don't believe it's disposable either, which is where our culture has come to. I suggest that words of Jesus clearly imply that it's breakable. But it shouldn't be. It can be broken, but it shouldn't be. The Greek, by the way, is in what's called the imperative mood, which carries the idea of an order. It's, it's don't do this, or, or more mildly, please don't do this, but it is never the order, you cannot do this. I think Jesus is saying you can, but don't. You can, but you shouldn't. That's what he's saying. The next thing he says, by the way, is kind of interesting. He says divorce is not compulsory in the case of adultery, but it is allowable. The, 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 the Pharisees who had come respond to Jesus and say, well, say, well Moses commanded us divorce. He, he commanded us to write out a, a divorce certificate. And they had taken from that. The standard rabbinic teaching was that after adultery, divorce was compulsory. Jesus changed that and said, look, Moses suffered it or he allowed it or he gave permission for that to happen in this case. But it's not required. And I think what Jesus did was open up the possibility for forgiveness for the erring partner. He understood that the restoration of a relationship could be a possibility and, and, and would encourage that where it was a possibility. But I think also, being a realist, he understood that when trust has been crushed and broken by unfaithfulness, there are times it has been crushed and broken beyond redemption. And in such a case, he said, I understand. And there is the possibility of, of, of divorce. Restoration is not possible sometimes when there is a hard-heartedness that amounts to a stubborn refusal to repent. Jesus, with realism and I think with a sense of pain, probably said in that case, divorce is allowable. This is an unusual one, but um, marriage is not compulsory. Jesus went on to talk about, the disciples said, man, if this is the case, perhaps it's easier if people shouldn't get married. And Jesus said, well, look, not everybody, it's not everybody's gift. There are some people who are eunuchs made by man. There are some people who become eunuchs for the kingdom of God. What he was saying in the midst of all of that is you do not have to be married. In, in Jewish culture, this is, their idea is profoundly different. You had to be married. Jews regarded marriage as compulsory because of the command in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. That they, marriage to them was compulsory. It was regarded as a command. And also, unfortunately, it gave rise to what Jews perceived to be also another ground for divorce, and that was infertility. If the command was be fruitful and, married and multiply, and you married and, and you couldn't have children, then after 10 years, it was expected that you would divorce that person and you would remarry in order to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus' teaching, without going into a whole lot of detail, makes it clear that neither marriage nor childbearing is required. As a consequence of what he's saying here, infertility is not regarded as a valid cause for divorce. It's not in the law. It had been added to it, and Jesus does away with it with one stroke right there. Then he gets to their question. They want to know, is any cause divorce valid? And he simply says, no, it's not. I can guarantee that whoever divorces his wife for any cause, other than unfaithfulness, that's adultery. And, uh, and, and so he sides clearly with Shammai in the debate. Any cause divorce is rejected. Interestingly enough, he uses the exact same language as the Shammai 
uh, people did. And I believe in using the exact same language as they did. He meant to... Uh, he meant to convey the exact same meaning that they used. And, and friends, the context is Deuteronomy 24.1. That's what they are debating. They aren't talking about food, clothing, and conjugal love. They're, they're, that's not part of the debate. They are debating, is there two reasons for divorce or one in this passage of Scripture? Is it sexual unfaithfulness alone or is it any cause in sexual unfaithfulness? And Jesus very, very clearly says, it's not any cause. Don't go there. That is invalid. It's sexual unfaithfulness. The fact that he doesn't say anything about those other three issues doesn't mean that he doesn't regard them as valid. Everybody in the debate regarded those as valid. Jesus is talking into a context where everybody accepts those four things. They are wondering about a fifth thing. And Jesus is saying there isn't a fifth thing. But some people, especially in our day, have done away with all those other things and said, now Jesus only allows one reason for divorce and it's sexual unfaithfulness. I think that's to do damage to what Jesus intended because we simply just don't understand the context. He wasn't even commenting on the Exodus 21 passage. He, he wasn't invalidating them. The, the disciples of Shammai, who were the conservatives, accepted those three grounds as being valid for divorce. And it seems really strange to me that on, occasion, on an occasion when Jesus is really correcting a lot of their misperceptions and misconceptions about marriage, that he doesn't take the opportunity to change and challenge that if they were wrong. Now, I want to finish by just saying, I know that you, know, you, have, you have to be careful making an argument for silence, but I honestly think it's defensible on this occasion because the silence is so surprising. If Jesus regarded those three grounds of Exodus 21 as being invalid, he has the perfect opportunity to say so here. He's saying a lot of other things about what are invalid, and he doesn't even mention those things. As I said, all present in this debate would assume that Jesus accepted them as grounds for divorce. Shamites and Hillites alike believed these three grounds were valid. They were the written part of the law. They were universally accepted. If Jesus wanted to challenge them and say they were wrong, he would need to do it. When Jesus keeps quiet about universal beliefs, it's accepted by most scholars that he accepted it. You know, he never said anything about monotheism because everybody understood it. Everybody believed it, including Jesus. So he didn't challenge it. There was no reason to challenge it. If he regarded those three things, food, clothing, conjugal love, as not being valid reasons for divorce, here is the perfect opportunity to challenge it. And, and if he wants us to understand that he doesn't accept them, he needed to challenge it, he doesn't. I think Jesus, along with the other rabbis, recognized that there were grounds for divorce when vows that had been entered into were repeatedly in a hard-hearted manner broken. I don't think he thought it was a good idea. It's clear that he didn't want it to happen. He said, please don't do it. But he recognized that in a society that is marked by brokenness and fallenness and dysfunction, tragically it happened. And he accepted that there would be people who would go that way and there was that attempt in the grace and kindness of God to limit the pain of it. 
And I, and I find it really difficult to understand how we've got to a place where we can tell a woman who is getting physically beaten within an inch of her life that she must stay in that situation because Jesus only gives one grounds for divorce and it's sexual unfaithfulness. And while he's beating the snot out of you, he's not being sexually unfaithful. I'm sorry, you've got to stay there. That to me is stupidity. And, and, I, and I don't think it's biblical. I realize the danger of what I say um, in the sense of, I, I suppose some people could say, Don, you're giving people an easy out. You know, I can see people tank, taking what you're saying and maneuvering it in their way to get what they want and, and get out of a relationship saying, well, he doesn't look after me materially. He didn't get me the latest Gucci bag. You know, I feel, I feel materially deprived and so I'm going to divorce them because, you know, well, I, I know people do that sort of dumb stuff. But you know what? Those people, if they're motivated like that, they find their way out anyway. And, and in order to stop those kind of people making dumb choices, why should we make it so stringent that people with real reasons are hogtied and cannot get out of it because we don't want those people to, to, to make a pretext out of our teaching? You know, when Paul preached the gospel, he said, listen, some people are listening to what I'm saying and they're saying, this grace thing is so amazing that we might as well go out and sin up large because there's so much grace. He said, people are saying that about me. And he said, that's not what I'm saying at all. But I realize that some people could take what I'm saying and push it that far. And actually, Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, if when you preach the gospel, people don't ask the question, can we carry on and sin then? Then you haven't preached the gospel. And I realized the temptation pastorally to pull it back a few notches to stop your, you know, your loose head lens at that end of the scale doing dumb stuff. But once you ratchet it back to stop the dumb stuff that end, you start paying the cost at this end with people who are really going through some tough stuff. And I think I'm prepared to take the risk. And just bring it back to what I hope is a biblical middle saying that Jesus understood that when we made our marriage commitments, we made our commitments to nourish physically, to, to give physical affection, to give sexual faithfulness, and we're committed to those. And although there might be times where we vary in terms of our ability to sustain those vows, there's forgiveness and grace. But when someone with a hard-hearted, unrepentant attitude just keeps pushing the boundaries and pushing the boundaries and pushing the boundaries, there is the place where that partner can say, you know what, they have so broken and trampled my trust in terms of the way they've treated those vows I, I can't keep extending forgiveness I need an out and I would suggest to you the person who has caused the divorce is not them but them when you break the vows that's what causes the divorce this is just the enacting out of the inevitable if if you don't believe that, if you are, no, I believe that Jesus said there's one cause for divorce and it's sexual unfaithfulness. I'm going to talk about this next week, but I just want to throw it out as a teaser for you. When you get to Paul, you've got a problem. Because you know what? Paul amends Jesus. I, I, imagine the affront. Imagine... How do you take seriously somebody who amends Jesus? Imagine going into the Sermon on the Mount and saying, nice try, Jesus, nice try, but we need to change this, mate. That's just out of... Yeah. It, no one in their right mind is going to amend Jesus. I mean, when he spoke, he spoke 
with such authority and clarity and profundity. Nobody in their right mind amends Jesus. But Paul comes along and says, you know what? In the case of abandonment, there is an opportunity here for that partner to get a divorce and remarriage. It's clear as in 1 Corinthians 7. So if Jesus says, this one cause, who the hang does Paul think he is coming and say, well, I'm going to add one more, Jesus. That, that, that didn't make sense. But in the light of the whole discussion, if you, if you accept what was valid in the, New, the Old Testament and understand the context of the question that was asked Jesus and his answer to it, but his acceptance of those things, and then bring that through to the New Testament, it all, it all just runs with an unbroken thread. And I want to talk more about that next week. I appreciate the way you're listening to it. I know that a lot of you are thinking, this doesn't relate to me. In fact, it was funny because we had some guy coming off the street last week and the person who was on the door told me they came in, they opened up the bulletin and the notes were there. Oh, divorce and remarriage, he said. Not where I live. Gave the bulletin back and went off to another church. <laughs> and that's, that's cool, you know. I mean, I, I realize that a lot of you might sort of think the same and, and think, you know, it's not really where I'm living, Don, but... I really appreciate that you're sitting listening because as I said to you before, I doubt that there's one of you here. I doubt that there's not one of you here whose lives haven't been touched by this at some dimension. And the whole purpose of it is, uh, is, is just basically to try and clarify our thinking biblically so that we're not in a situation where we're saying something but have no idea what we, why we say that, why we believe that. And to kind of try and bring some clarity to the whole debate. So that's, that's kind of the goal. Um, I'm hoping I'll finish it next week, but we'll see how we do. Let's stand together, shall we? Once again, thanks for listening to this Gateway Podcast. For sermon notes and more information, check out www.gateway-net.com.